Huxley basically argued if people would lose their freedom because they were so entertained by screens, by entertainment, uh, by pop culture, that they would voluntarily give up a lot of their personal information and a lot of their agency. There's no doubt that Orwell got everything right, I think, in my opinion, except one thing, perhaps. Government, I don't think that's going to be Big Brother. You know, I think it's going to actually be a combination of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's about unlimited access and power. These companies know you better than you know yourself, and they know everything you do and say in private, and they also understand how to manipulate that knowledge. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello, and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua. Today will be our third episode in this coronavirus special that I am doing since a lot of these things that are going on in the middle of this pandemic with COVID-19 directly relate to a lot of the other things that I'm discussing in season two, which is where this series takes place. And so I interjected this series to go over some of these things to highlight them. And this is the third part. In this part, I want to talk about some of the institutional players and what's going on there in relation to things I've already been discussing in this season. So we'll talk a little bit about corporations, large mega international corporations. We'll talk a little bit about the monetary system and the economy. And we'll talk a little bit about global groups as well, international groups, things like the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum, places like that, groups like that. And then we will get in the end to some other issues dealing with tech and data collection and more of the technocratic governance system, that type of thing. And so we'll discuss all those at the end and wrap up the episode. So that's the plan. To begin with, though, I came across quite a few bits of information that I wanted to share. It may seem a little bit random, but it is all relevant. And so what I'm going to do is kind of go over those things so that you can have that up front and um, kind of be able to digest that and relate that to the things that I'll be talking about for the rest of the episode. So what I'm doing is I'm just going to read different excerpts from different places that I have gotten in relation to this research I've been doing for this episode. And then once we finish that, I will get into my main part of the episode after that. The first excerpt I will go to will come from the New York Times. This comes from March 31st, 2020, and it goes like this, quote, As the coronavirus pandemic brings the world to a juddering halt and anxious citizens demand action, leaders across the globe are invoking executive powers and seizing virtually dictatorial authority with scant resistance. As the new laws broaden state surveillance, allow governments to detain people indefinitely, and infringe on the freedoms of assembly and expression, they could also shape civic life, politics, and economies for decades to come. So it's not just me seeing these things. This is a pretty mainstream source, the New York Times. And so I wanted to make sure that um, I got that out there. So the next bit is a little interesting, kind of along the same lines. This comes from Henry Kissinger, who is someone that I have mentioned in the past related to usually corruption and conspiracy, and like much of this is. So I will read some excerpts from an article that he did in the Wall Street Journal 
and I'll just I I took a few sections out and I just did a few paragraphs at a time on the things that were directly related I felt and that were good information and I'm not going to read the entire thing but I'll read these and it is fairly long but I'll read this and this comes from Henry Kissinger who as you may know is very well respected in the political realm and he is somebody that has been around for a long time so he wrote and I quote Drawing lessons from the development of the Marshall Plan and the Manhattan Project, the U.S. is obliged to undertake a major effort in three domains. First, shore up global resilience to infectious disease. Second, strive to heal the wounds to the world economy. Third, safeguard the principles of the liberal world order. While the assault on human health will, hopefully, be temporary, the political and economic upheaval it has unleashed could last for generations. No country, not even the U.S., can, in a purely national effort, overcome the virus. Addressing the necessities of the moment must ultimately be coupled with a global, collaborative vision and program. If we cannot do both in tandem, we will face the worst of each. Now, in a divided country... Efficient and far-sighted government is necessary to overcome obstacles unprecedented in magnitude and global scope. Sustaining the public trust is crucial to social solidarity, to the relation of societies with each other, and to the international peace and stability. Nations cohere and flourish on the belief that their institutions can foresee calamity, arrest its impact, and restore stability— When the COVID-19 pandemic is over, many countries' institutions will be perceived as having failed. Whether this judgment is objectively fair is irrelevant. The reality is that the world will never be the same after the coronavirus. To argue now about the past only makes it harder to do what has to be done. The world's democracies need to defend and sustain their Enlightenment values. A global retreat from balancing power with legitimacy will cause the social contract to disintegrate, both domestically and internationally. Enlightenment thinkers argued that the purpose of the legitimate state is to provide for the fundamental needs of the people, security, order, economic well-being, and justice. Individuals cannot secure these things on their own. The pandemic has prompted an anachronism, a revival of the walled city in an age when prosperity depends on global trade and movement of people. So that wraps up what I pulled out from him. Henry Kissinger has been all about the New World Order ever since he's really been on the political scene. And that's not necessarily conspiratorial. That's just his view is that we live in a global world in a world full of people and full of countries that all interact together, trade together, and they all need to be connected and governed together. And that's something he's called for a lot. But as you can hear, he's really trying to... uh, make sure that people understand that this is very important. And the importance of this global governance is something that he sees as being highlighted by the current events and pandemic. Now, the next thing I wanted to bring up is one related to something I covered in the previous episode. In the previous episode, I talked about an initiative called ID2020 that had people like the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, 
different people like that that I've discussed before. And it was about having an international global ID system where everybody can be tracked and accounted for and that kind of stuff. And this is another program that I found that I'm about to go over. And this one comes from the World Economic Forum. And if you remember, the World Economic Forum was the one that hosted Event 201, which was the simulation for basically what we're going through now a few months before it happened. And so they're also, they did that with the Gates Foundation. So there's plenty of connections here and it's all related, but it's a very similar initiative as ID2020. So I wanted to just pull out their description straight from their website of the known traveler digital identity. And that is KTDI for short. So I'll go ahead and just read what it says on the official World Economic Forum website. The known traveler digital identity, KTDI, concept relies upon a trusted, decentralized, and interoperable identity platform enabled through technologies including blockchain, biometrics, mobile devices, and cryptography. The forum and its partners are currently piloting components of the KTDI concept in a real-life, cross-border context to further enhance the concept and inform future pilots. The pilot learnings will also help inform the development of best practices and standards in collaboration with international regulatory and standard-setting bodies and industry. So that's what they describe it as. It, again, is an international ID that they're using blockchain, biometrics, and mobile devices for. So I've talked about each one of these things previously on the show. I did the whole series on blockchain, and I did pull out the fact that this is being used and will be used by governments to track citizens worldwide. And that's exactly what they're planning on doing with it. They say it's decentralized and... I would be willing to bet that that word does not have the meaning that they think it has, or at least not the meaning that pure blockchain and cryptocurrency connoisseurs would like it to have. So that's something that they're using, though. It's a hype word, blockchain. I've talked about that many times in the past. They're using biometrics, so there is essentially no way to cheat the system. They can track everybody based on, say, an eye scan or fingerprint or something like that. And mobile devices, which I've already talked about, how people are being tracked according to their mobile phones and location data. Governments, including the U.S., are doing that currently right now. There are places you can find that rank all the states in the U.S. according to how well they're doing with social distancing. And the way they know is by looking at location data, which they say, of course, is anonymous. So it's not invading anybody's privacy. But as we do know, that stuff is definitely not anonymous. And so this is another thing that is being ran. Like I mentioned, there is a connection here between the World Economic Forum and Event 201. They do these kinds of things all the time where they simulate certain scenarios and oftentimes they end up coming true in the future. And that could be because they know something ahead of time. It could be because they find an event in a scenario that plays out the way they want it to, then they make it happen. Or it could just be that they're doing a good job at predicting the future, or maybe they just run so many different programs that you know a broken clock is right twice. And I don't know. But this is another thing where they say they are doing 
this, they are currently piloting components of the KTDI concept in real life. And that's what they're doing. They're running a pilot program. They're testing it out. They're seeing how it plays out. And I would be willing to bet lots of money that this will get rolled out, whether that be in the very near future and you tie it with vaccine records, with your digital identity, and that helps to see if you're able to go across borders or purchase certain things or whatever. We'll see. There are plenty of opinions there. But moving on, there's another person that I've ran across multiple times. I think I've mentioned him or at least the church committee in the past and I think in the um, corruption and conspiracy series that I did. But I wanted to pull out some of the things that he said related to his investigations. And it's something that is good background information to all this and what's going on. And this does come from 1975. So this is old, um, relatively. This is not modern information and a modern opinion. This comes from decades ago. And so it's interesting how relevant what he's saying has become in today's world. So to give a little bit of background, I'm just going to read uh, the brief description of who he is according to Wikipedia, and then I will go over some of the things that he had said. So this is Frank Forrester Church III, and he was alive from July 25th, 1924 to April 7th, 1984. He was an American lawyer and politician, a member of the Democratic Party. He served as a United States Senator from Iowa from 1957 to 1981. He is known for heading the Church Committee, which investigated abuses within the United States intelligence community. On August 17, 1975, Senator Frank Church appeared on NBC's Meet the Press and discussed the NSA without mentioning it by name. Quote, in the need to develop a capacity to know what potential enemies are doing, the United States government has perfected a technological capability that enables us to monitor the messages that go through the air. Now, that is necessary and important to the United States as we look abroad to enemies or potential enemies. We must know, at the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people, and no American would have any privacy left. Such is the capability to monitor everything. Telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter. There would be no place to hide. If this government ever became a tyranny, if a dictator ever took charge in this country, the technological capacity that the intelligence community has given the government could enable it to impose total tyranny. And there would be no way to fight back because the most careful effort to combine together in resistance to the government, no matter how privately it was done, is within the reach of the government to know. Such is the capability of this technology. I don't want to see this country ever go across the bridge. I know the capacity that there is to make tyranny total in America, and we must see to it that this agency and all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under the proper supervision so that we never cross over that abyss. That is the abyss from which there is no return. And that'll be the end of that quote. So again, Frank Church talks about how basically in 1975, the NSA and the intelligence community could see absolutely every communication that happened, period, on all American citizens, much less others. And 
that definitely has just increased since then. I have covered that aspect as well. And he talks about how this technological capability is something that could enable a tyranny that could basically take over the whole country and no one would be able to do anything about it. Now, some might argue that this has already happened, that it wasn't just a single dictator like a Hitler, for example, or a single party like the National Socialist Party in of the Nazis. But this is something that has happened more behind the scenes with different groups such as some of the intelligence community agencies like the CIA, NSA, and some of the high-ups there in conjunction with some of the uh, very important corporations and foundations that exist, and also in conjunction with some other oligarchical groups. And many people believe that this is something that already happens. We've already gone into that abyss and there is no return. A lot of people think there is a return, but according to Frank Church, there is not. But other people believe that we have not crossed over this bridge yet. And I will leave that opinion up to you. I'm just giving you the information that I came across that I felt was very relevant. Now, the next thing is an excerpt that I got from a more conspiratorial website, but it does give the different sources for all these things, and it's just a grouping of different quotes and stuff. This comes from the Children's Health Defense, ran by Robert Kennedy Jr., and this is uh, one that has called out a lot of government corruption and things of this nature, and so they have definitely done very well at researching a lot of this information and reporting it. So this is from one of their articles that's posted on the website there, and it talks about some different sources and people that are relevant to the types of things that I'm discussing. So let's start off here. Quote, from The Guardian on March 27th, Quote, Gordon Brown has urged world leaders to create a temporary form of global government to tackle the twin medical and economic crises caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. The former labor prime minister, who was at the center of the international efforts to tackle the impact of the near meltdown of the banks in 2008, said there was a need for a task force involving world leaders, health experts, and the heads of the international organizations that would have executive powers to coordinate the response. CNBC reported, quote, Users of the U.S. dollar are underserved by an analog currency in a digital world. Christopher... Giancarlo, Giancarlo, I'm not really sure, G-I-A-N-C-A-R-L-O, former chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC, said during an event in Davos. Quote, the promise of a central bank digital currency is that it could make cross-border movement of money easier and improve traceability to fight corruption or money laundering, according to Henry Arslanian. Arslanian, global crypto leader at PwC, end quote. Then, it would also make tracking and surveilling citizens far easier and more efficient. Quote, there are two kinds of economic surveillance to take note of. One is surveillance by companies, the other is by the state, writes Melissa Twig. Financial analyst Tom Nichols says, quote, it's the companies that want to get data on you, but they form the pool of data that then a state would be able to access, end quote. It may sound very Black Mirror, but it's already happening in China, where mass financial data from Alipay is helping to craft the country's social credit system, which will reward and punish citizens based on economic behavior. 
Now that's the end of that article there. And there are some very important things that are brought out there. You've got another person, kind of like Kissinger, kind of plays a similar role in a lot of ways, Gordon Brown. And he talks about a task force involving world leaders, health experts, and the heads of international organizations. The exact same people that I've been discussing would be in charge if we had a more technocratic governance system. And so he says that's what we need. And then there's also talk of doing a central bank digital currency. Talked a lot about that at the end of the blockchain series I did, that that was coming. And yes, uh, people are still calling for that. And this is a good, eh, you could say, excuse or a good reason why to go ahead and push for rolling that out in the very near future. And then at the end, they talk about surveillance and being surveilled by companies and how then that data is accessed by the state, which if you go back to Frank Church, who talked about how the NSA, CIA, they can get all this information. Part of that is through companies and corporations like this. Yes, and China is using this in many different ways, including the social credit system, which could in the future be tied to an international ID, such as the initiative ID2020, or the known traveler identification program. So all of this stuff does tie together. It's really interesting. Now, there is one last thing I wanted to go over. This also comes from the Children's Health Defense from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., his organization at least. And I will just read the relevant section I pulled out. And this is about um, Anthony Fauci, who has definitely been in the spotlight during this coronavirus pandemic. He has taken the lead and really influenced the state reaction in the U.S. as well as internationally. And so let me read a little bit about this. Quote, The Daily Mail reported that it has uncovered documents showing that Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIAID, gave $3.7 million to scientists at the Wuhan lab at the center of the coronavirus leak scrutiny. According to the British paper, quote, the federal grant funded experiments on bats from the caves where the virus is believed to have originated, end quote. For some background, following the 2002-2003 SARS coronavirus outbreak, NIH funded a collaboration with with Chinese scientists, U.S. military virologists from the Bioweapons Lab at Fort Detrick, and National Institutes of Health scientists from NIAID to prevent future coronavirus outbreaks by studying the evolution of virulent strains from bats in human tissues. Those efforts included, quote, gain-of-function research, which is, quote, accelerated viral evolution, end quote, to create COVID pandemic superbugs enhanced by bat-borne COVID mutants more lethal and more transmissible than wild COVID. Fauci's studies alarmed scientists around the globe who complained, according to a December 2017 New York Times article, that, quote, these researchers risk creating a monster germ that could escape the lab and seed a pandemic, end quote. Dr. Mark Lipstitch of the Harvard School of Public Health's Communicable Disease Center told the Times that Dr. Fauci's NIAID experiments, quote, have given us some modest scientific knowledge and done almost nothing to improve our preparedness for pandemic, and yet risk creating an accidental pandemic, end quote. 
in October 2014 following a series of federal laboratory mishaps that narrowly missed releasing these deadly engineered viruses, President Obama ordered the halt to all federal funding for Fauci's dangerous experiments. NIAID-funded gain-of-function research continued after the moratorium in a Wuhan-based laboratory. So again, this is more information that I have already covered aspects of. I mentioned Fort Detrick before, and we have definitely talked about how many of the players and a lot of what's going on has been on the scenes for a long time. It's not new. And here is an article from 2017 and information from 2014 and the 2002-2003 SARS outbreak. There are people doing what's called gain-of-function research. And gain-of-function, that means that you are gaining on one of the functions of a virus. So one example of this might be the incubation period. So maybe a virus has an incubation period of three days. So you catch the virus, you have it for three days before you start showing symptoms. Well, the longer that incubation period is, the higher the chances are that you will spread it to a lot more people before you realize that you're sick. And so gain of function on a virus with a three-day incubation period would mean that you would go from three days to four, five, six, seven days. Or like our current uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it's anywhere from seven to 10 days, I think, is on average. And so that is gain-of-function research. You take a virus, you gain some of the functions. Maybe it's fatality rates. Maybe it is incubation period. Maybe it is what parts of the body it affects different things like this. And that is research that is being done, has been being done since minimum 2002 to 2003, and has been funded by the US with none other than Dr. Fauci as playing a prominent role in all this with Fort Detrick involved and the bioweapons facility at Wuhan. And so yeah, it's all connected. It is a rich tapestry. So now that all of that information is out of the way, and I do apologize for just reading a whole lot, but I think that is very interesting, relevant, good information to get, and it does correlate really well with the things that I'm talking about. So I wanted to make sure that as I run across some of this stuff in my own research, I present what I feel is the most relevant and what is the most important out of the things that I come across. And that also gives you some more uh, mainstream sources that are more official. And you can see that it's not just me coming up with random ideas, which hopefully you do not think already, but that can at least reinforce that and make sure that this is coming from many different places. Now, to get into what I wanted to talk about, the first thing I wanted to go over was corporations. So as I've been discussing this idea of a technocracy and us moving to more of a technocratic type of governance, just like after the Reformation, we saw things moving and shifting into nation states. And that was the political order and governance system that developed after the Thirty Years' War and with all of the changes and shifts in power and all that stuff that happened. And I've been relating that to a parallel in modern times with this shift towards a more technocratic governance system and political entities. And with that comparison, the role that the nobility played in the past in history where out of the nobility came the kings and queens that ended up running these nation states and developed this national identity out of the bureaucracy that already existed to an extent among the nobility. I've been relating that to large international corporations and how that is probably where a lot of these 
these experts that would run a technocratic system would come from, and you would see probably some sort of global entity that sprung from the roots of the current corporate world. So looking at large corporations and large foundations and these types of groups is something that would be very important to see if this parallel really is playing out. And so I wanted to highlight some of these aspects. One of them would be that large corporations are responding well, according to most people. You have lots of corporations that are shutting their doors and implementing certain policies such as social distancing and all of these types of things, sanitary measures, these things. Uh, There are also corporations such as Facebook that have donated gigantic stockpiles of masks, for example, or ventilators, or are retooling their factories to make ventilators. Ford offered to do that. And so these corporations are definitely responding very well in the public eye to this pandemic. So they are gaining a little bit of trust from the world as a whole. Now, with this, they need more power, more money, and less regulation to do the things that they say they need to do. So if a company, a corporation wants to get more involved with a national response or a global response, sometimes there's a lot of governmental red tape or issues with dealing with multiple countries at the same time, or maybe they don't have the money. A lot of businesses and economies have been shut down mandatorily from the government. And so what are they going to do? They need more money. They also need more power to get the things done, and they need less red tape to be able to do this on a mass scale. If you've been paying attention, this is exactly what's going on. Governments are printing money and giving it to large corporations and giving out government contracts, and they are taking this money and using it to have a mass response to this crisis that's going on and to sustain these uh, corporations that are probably a little too big to fail, according to many people. And so with that, these corporations are getting more power, they are getting more money, and they are given more wiggle room to do these things, which means less regulation to handle these global issues. Now, this is something that is happening, and this is something that is directly related to the same shift that started to happen during the time or after the time of the Reformation, when as a church was losing more power, people were not looking quite as fondly upon the church at this point in time. Previous to the Reformation, you had something like like the Black Plague, which might come to mind, when a lot of people did lose faith in the church as well, because that was the church's job, is to protect them from something like this, and they failed, and the church couldn't stop it. The church couldn't do anything about it. And the church did lose a little trust from that, just like governments have lost a lot of trust over the past, say, 100 years or a few decades even, and people are Uh, less trusting and less patriotic from that standpoint as far as thinking that their politicians that are in charge are there for their best well-being and they're there for the good of the people as a whole. People don't really think that very much anymore oftentimes. So trust has already been eroded to an extent, but as you have a certain event, a certain scenario, a certain Um, time period that happens, which right now I'm discussing the coronavirus pandemic, and previously it would have been the Reformation, you see more shifts start to happen. And these things that already existed, and were already there, and were already trending, are exaggerated, and they become more and more prevalent and more and more extreme. And so we see that 
as governments are seen as kind of failing, not having a very good response. Certain leaders are being called out for not doing enough or for doing too much. Either they are becoming too dictatorial or they are not being dictatorial enough. So it's interesting, President Trump in the U.S. has been accused of both many times from oftentimes the same groups. So a little interesting there. But governments are not um, being portrayed as responding extremely well as a whole to this pandemic, but corporations are seen as handling things uh, definitely much better and having a better response on all this. So with this, you see corporations gaining the trust of the masses. Governments are losing a little bit more of the trust of the masses. And with that, you see a little more power going to the hands of the corporate world and bleeding from the hands of of the governments around the world. So that's one of the shifts that is definitely relevant here. We see an increase in things like automation and less of a reliance on personal employees. This is something that has been mandated according to government response to the virus. And since you can't have a lot of employees working close together in a factory or in a corporate setting, they're doing a lot of stuff remotely. A lot of stuff is being automated. A lot of stuff is being done differently. And again, it's just accentuating these trends that have already been occurring. But with this, this does put a lot more... Uh, potential and possibility into the hands of large corporations when you compare that to small businesses. A lot of small businesses can't really handle that. They can't really work remotely as well. A lot of small businesses can't handle the loss of funds. A lot of them are not getting free money from the government. They are given access to loans, then they have to pay them back and they're already paying rent on their buildings or stores that they are receiving no income from. And yeah, it gets a little messy. That's really hard. That's a very hard storm to weather as a small company. But as a massive global corporation, not such a big deal. Yes, they take a hit. Yes, their stock price tanks. But overall, they'll be just fine. And they will be able to consolidate. That is something I've talked about with the nobility of the historical time period, that there was a lot of consolidation amongst royal families and noble families, and you ended up with a few families that basically ran all of Europe. Now, this is something that does seem to be occurring in the corporate world today with a lot of small businesses failing, a lot of even big companies are really struggling. And so the mega corporations are buying out a lot of these small businesses and smaller companies at rock bottom prices. So they're getting a great deal. The smaller companies can't make it anyway. The bigger companies gobble them up. You have more and more consolidation. You have a lot of mergers. I have talked about this in previous episodes, how there have been so many CEOs and top level executives that have left companies over the past probably year or so as of this recording and a lot of big mergers that are happening amongst these big corporations and things like this. These things are happening. These shifts are occurring. And it is analogous to the parallels from the Reformation, at least to a degree. And this is just becoming more and more prevalent as we have this crisis economically and socially um, of the COVID-19 virus. 
Now, another aspect of this is that corporations, like I said, are calling for less regulation to get done what they need to get done. There are things that they need to do. There are things they need to produce. They have to distribute it. They've got to work with multiple governments and multiple countries. These are things that they are working on and doing, and they need less red tape to do it. But at the same time, a lot of corporations and industries are actually calling for more regulation in certain areas to prevent issues of contamination or prevent issues of running out of funds and not being able to help and prevent this pandemic from spreading or prevent a future pandemic or whatever the case may be. They are calling for regulation in some areas at the same time as they are calling for less regulation in others. And the way this plays out is the way historically it pretty much always has, where you have these big corporations that get less red tape to do the things that benefit them and more red tape to keep out their competition. And a good example of this is one I've covered many times with the Federal Reserve. If you remember the Federal Reserve Act that got passed that started the Federal Reserve, that came out of a response from the public for more regulation to regulate the banks and banks stepping up and saying, hey, we need more regulation for our monetary system. And through a series of uh, conspiratorial and corrupt dealings, it ended up happening and you had the Federal Reserve. And it was a very similar deal where in some ways they wanted less regulation to deal with things. They didn't want the government to control the monetary system as a whole. They wanted a lot of power and a lot of wiggle room there. So less regulation to an extent, but more regulation in the sense that it was a lot more formalized. No one else could get in. It was just these big banks that existed in the U.S. in partnership with the government. And again, this is a lot of what's going on today with uh, private-public partnerships and these types of things, these big corporations getting even bigger and consolidating even more. Now, I would like to briefly stop for a second and apologize if you hear a crying baby in the background. That is just life right now. We have a baby. He is crying. And so I am at home and I am locked in my recording area and there's nothing that I can really do about that. So I will try to edit that out best as possible. But if there are mild crying baby sounds in the background, I am sorry, but that's just the way it is. So moving on to the next section I wanted to talk a little bit more about the monetary system. Um, and I guess we have a good link there from the Federal Reserve. So uh, I did an episode about our debt-based society as a whole and how everybody's in debt. Governments are in debt that they'll never be able to pay off. Corporations run on debt, even when they're making gigantic profits at the same time. You have individuals that are running their lives on debt and buying things on debt, and it's a debt-based society. Well, the problem is that a debt-based society is completely unsustainable in a crisis. You cannot keep it up. It doesn't work. People are not making the money to even pay their debts, much less pay for what they actually have. They already couldn't pay for what they have. That's why they had the debt. And then you can't even pay on your debt because you're not earning an income or not as high of an income as you would have, or prices are going up, or inflation is going up. Whatever the case may be, there are definitely struggles there, and it is not very sustainable without maybe intervention. And that's why people are calling for government stimulus checks and things of this nature. So you get the, yes, again, Hegelian dialectic. You have problem, reaction, solution. You have this problem that we have a debt-based society, and in a crisis, that doesn't work. And the reaction is that people freak out. They don't know what to do, and they beg their governments and uh, corporate overlords to help them, and those institutions institutions provide their solution and make sure that they are able to help these 
poor people that are in trouble and in need in society. And so it works out just like that problem, reaction, solution. And that is what we have here. Part of what's being called out here is people are saying that capitalism has failed, that the free market has no answer for job interruption. What's going to happen when no one's working? If you only get paid to work in a totally free market system, totally purely capitalistic system, what happens? People aren't working, therefore they don't make money, therefore they, what, starve to death? I mean, what happens? How does this play out? And a lot of people are just saying that capitalism has failed. Now, there are many answers and many responses to these types of questions that I will definitely not get into in this episode, but... Let's just go off of what's being said, that capitalism has failed. Let's give them that. Let's say capitalism has failed. Well, of course, if your economic system has failed, what do you need to do? Well, you need a new economic system. And if you remember, I believe the first episode of this coronavirus special series, I read the quote that said something to the extent of this is the first time in history that we are trying to create a brand new economic order out of the ashes of the old. And that's basically exactly what is attempting to be done currently in many different ways. Now, as I relate that to the parallels that I'm drawing in season two with Time of the Reformation, these are shifts that happened then too. There are plenty of economic shifts that were going on, the way people uh, handled trade and handled borders and the economies, local economies. Uh, We have the shift from feudalism into what were the beginnings of what capitalism would become in the future. But we see these changes economically as well, just like we see them happening now. And as I've talked about with technocracy, the claim is that technocracy is not a political system, but rather a resource management system, more of an economic system, which is exactly related to what we're talking about with a new economic system, a new economic world order. If you want to go back to uh, the UN and back to the Council on Foreign Relations, they talk about that a lot. That's why the Trilateral Commission was started, was to create a new economic world order. So yes, it all ties together here. Now, as we go on, Something else that's happening right now is that money is being printed off in the trillions to stem the reactions to the economic chaos, so to say. Now, a lot of these trillions are going straight to corporations, but there is some of this that is going straight to the public. And with this, it is good to the extent that people are getting money when they need money and they don't have any other way of getting it. Uh, legally, they have no other way. If their businesses are shut down, what else are they going to do? The economy has been forcefully shut down by the government. So either they act against the government orders, so illegally, or they just sit back at home and struggle and hope for that government check to come in. Well, This doesn't work indefinitely. This cannot play out indefinitely. I've talked about this many times before with the issue of inflation and things like this. You can't just keep printing off money and expect there to be no consequences. There are the same amount of goods and services that exist in the economy today prior to the crisis. And now there's actually even less that exists now. And if you are just printing off more and more money, but you have the same or less amount of goods and services, then that money doesn't really have the same value that it had before. And you have issues such as inflation that start to creep up. And this is not something that you really want. Now, I have discussed before as well that the dollar is the global reserve currency right now, and we export a lot of our inflation. This is something that 
is still playing out, and this is the reason why we don't have runaway inflation right now. So as the government is printing off trillions, so many people all around the world are going to cash, and specifically dollars. Uh, a lot of people are not going to their national currency exclusively, but they are also going to cash because that is the currency of global trade and global investment, and that is what's thought of as the safe haven in the world economy right now. So, so many people are wanting cash, so many people want out of the stock market as it crashes. So many people want out of different things that are tying up their money, different types of investments and vehicles. And instead, they want it in cash, something that they can spend, something they can access. And the dollar worldwide is the best option in most people's opinion. So there is a giant increase in demand for the dollar at the same time as the government is printing off trillions of dollars. So even though they print off trillions and give it to lots of people, mainly in the US, you have this increased demand all around the world that is demanding trillions at the same time. And so you can offset a lot of what would have been runaway inflation. So this is working in America's benefit, and we will see how long that plays out. The issue is that you can't do that forever. You can't just keep printing money and expect everything to be solved. Um, the caveat here is that this kind of did happen during the 2008 financial crisis. The government printed off a few trillion dollars. They put a lot of that into the markets and buying different assets and propped up the markets, put a lot more confidence into the public, invested it in other ways, and basically stopped the financial crisis of 2008-2009 and started to turn it around. And that worked, uh, mainly because people fell for it, but it still worked to an extent. A lot of people would actually argue that it didn't actually work. It just prolonged the bubble and reinflated it even bigger than it was before, which I would not necessarily disagree with. But if you look at the time period between 2008 and 2020, we could say it was a success in that time period at least. So for the short term, they did fix things by just printing off money. So it's something that can happen, and it can happen short term. It will not happen indefinitely. That is historically guaranteed. But it can happen short term, and we will see how this plays out. Another thing to keep in mind here is if you do have inflation starting to go up or the dollar losing some of its global reserve currency status, which as a side note, there are countries in the Eastern world that have been meeting to talk about not using the dollar as the global reserve currency and instead using local national currencies. There are governments such as I think Russia and China would be the big obvious players, but some others in the Eastern countries that recently since the uh, coronavirus pandemic have been discussing these types of things. But Again, if you have the global reserve currency um, aspect of the dollar being challenged and or if you have some inflation that increases greatly and not even necessarily runaway inflation, but high inflation, then you could start to see the system crack to a degree and people uh, want to do something different, just like wanting a new economic order. You could want a new monetary order as well. And as we discussed, what better than a global cryptocurrency ran by central banks, the, the, the banks you can trust. They will always do its best for the worldwide population, of course. And so that is something that very well might get rolled out. People have talked about this being a demolition of the current economic state. 
and that once you do a controlled demolition, you control that demolition, make sure it comes down the way you want it, and you re rebuild it the way that you want it to be in the future. Well, you could see the same thing with a monetary system, and you could argue the same thing with Federal Reserve, that JP Morgan and others intentionally crashed the markets prior to that, created the chaos, and then stepped in with the solution they wanted and got the reaction they wanted from the public and got the Federal Reserve enacted. Well, a similar thing could happen here. That's something to keep an eye on as we especially get into this area of digital currencies and things like this. Now, with this, you have this idea not only that capitalism has failed, the economic order of the day, but that the monetary system has failed, that Federal Reserve policy didn't stop the markets from crashing, and that the government response is also something that has been lacking in keeping the economy stable. Actually, on the contrary, they have shut down economies, most governments around the world. And so this is something where you could say, hey, the monetary system as a whole has failed. In America, you'd say the Federal Reserve system has failed. Well, what's the answer to that? Of course, you have a global smart money, a digital dollar that is ran by probably the World Bank has always been my guess ever since I dove into the blockchain world. But we'll see how that goes. That's just another possibility that um, if this is the event that pushes us into a new economic order, a new world order, a new monetary system, a new economic system, these types of things, then these would be those new systems and those new orders. And so I'm trying to highlight that. That way you can see that if it happens, then it's very obvious. But even if it doesn't, which is more likely actually, you can at least see the trend. You can see us moving step after step after step towards these things that are likely to come up in the future. Now, moving away from the monetary system aspect and the economic aspect, let's go into global groups as a whole. So as I've talked about before, if you have a technocracy that was in charge and governing things with resource allocation and sustainable development and different things like this, abilities for people to interact, to trade, uh, how people are allowed to consume and produce goods, all these types of things. That's what a technocracy does. It handles all of these things. It manages all these things. And it is managed by experts. Now, where do these experts come from? Well, I brought up one aspect of that that was the corporate world. That's where a lot of them come from. A lot of them then also come from world organizations. And then they also come from national governments, but not quite as much. If you look at world organizations, that is also something that highlights this aspect, because what are they? What are they made up out of? If you have the World Health Organization, the United Nations, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, these types of organizations and institutions, who works there? Who are the employees? Who are the people making decisions and doing the work that these groups do? Well, it's a mix of people from the governmental world of countries all around the world and the corporate world of international corporations. So if you look at the World Bank, the IMF, and compare that to people in the main banks like Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup, places like this, then you will see some very strong correlations there that a lot of these experts that come from the corporate world, then run and help manage these international organizations, these world groups. And then you also have some 
uh, government officials, usually in the bureaucracy, usually not the elected government officials, but the ones that those elected officials then elect themselves, those are the people that make up these world groups. So again, it's a good microcosm of what a technocracy would look like. You have experts from all these different sources and these different worldwide groups and places, and they come together to make decisions based on their expertise, based on a scientific method and scientific research. We are seeing a lot of that now with the science community, with a massive viral pandemic going on, and a lot of people are looking to who? The who. And with the World Health Organization stepping up, playing a very prominent role, a lot of countries as well as a lot of citizens of those countries are looking to these world organizations to take care of them and to give them unbiased information and to help to give them advice on how they're supposed to act, what policies they're supposed to enact, how individuals are supposed to go out in public and interact with each other. These are the things that people are looking to world organizations, looking to the experts to give them. Now, again, that is what a technocracy is, is you have the experts in charge making a lot of these decisions and being the ones to give this information out to the public and providing governance as a whole over society, not necessarily in a political manner, but in a resource allocation manner, so to say, resource management. And so we do, again, see this happening. Now, I have talked about how a modern version of technocracy would be the sustainable development movement. Well, what do you see getting pushed by a lot of these trillions that are getting printed off by governments around the world? Well, them going into Green New Deals and things of that nature, where you have a lot of money going into sustainable development, where it's, well, if the government is printing off all this money and wanting to invigorate the economy, let's do it sustainably and make sure we have smart cities and 5G and we are using sustainable resources and all of these types of things, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Most of these things are good. In, in certain ways. But again, when we get into talking about what a technocracy is and how that works, I'm just bringing out the fact that this is it, that this is either what a technocracy does per se, or at least it is an aspect of what a technocracy does. And so these are the things to keep an eye on. You have the who, who is running simulations. They are giving out information to the public. You have the IMF that's giving out aid to different countries. You have the World Bank that had issued a lot of pandemic bonds where they had millions, if not billions of dollars that then since there was a pandemic, they didn't have to pay out. And that the coronavirus was declared a pandemic just about a month, I think, before those bonds would have expired. And that was the trigger to get them to basically not have to pay those bonds back. So the World Bank made bank, and that was good for them. Uh, you see them playing a big role in talking about digital currencies, things like this. It's just all of these things are happening. It's all these world organizations. And there is a direct tie to the parallels I'm drawing between political and economic shifts after the Reformation and potential shifts that are happening now and are happening into the future. Now, another thing to pay attention to is that emerging markets, they need to get on board with the global systems that exist because they can't really handle things on their own. Very similar if you just take what I said about small businesses and their issues, apply that to small countries as well. You haven't heard a whole lot on mainstream news about different emerging markets, but I've heard a little bit about Africa in particular and some other areas, and they're ones that do struggle. 
And what's going to happen is since they have not been hit hard by the pandemic, at least as of the time I'm recording this, more than likely, they are going to jump on board these global systems and take this global advice and the global money to prevent themselves from having a disaster from the coronavirus. Whether that disaster would have or would have not happened anyway, it might not have anyway, but you never know. They will be preemptive in dealing with this, and preemptive action is something that... I've discussed before with pre-crime initiatives and things like that. That's what a technocracy does. They gather all the data, they make all their decisions, they make projections into the future and act on that according to their scientific and expert uh, opinions and data. So that's probably what's going to happen with emerging market countries. And that is something to keep an eye on. Again, that's not developing quite yet as far as I'm aware of, but that is very likely to be developing as we go on from here. Now, Moving on a little bit, I'll briefly um, get into something else with the use of technology. We have seen that we have become much more reliant on technology given the fact that people are not allowed to be around each other. Social distancing. If you can't go into work and you can't work in your own office, then you have to use technology to do what you are going to do for most jobs at least, if your job exists. And so what most people are doing is working remotely from home. What does that involve? That involves conference calls, a lot more emails, a lot more video chats, and a lot more things of this nature where you are doing things through technology that you normally might have done in person or out of an office, and you might have used technology in the office, I would assume so at least, but a lot more reliance on technology is something that is occurring right now due to just the nature of uh, this pandemic and our current scenario and what's going on. And so again, like most things, that's not necessarily a bad thing. In a lot of ways, it's a good thing. However, when we get into talking about surveillance and data collection and preemptive initiatives and preventative measures, things like this. Well, what do you need for that? You need a lot of people to use technology because that's how you gather all your data to make your decisions. That's how you gather all your surveillance. That's how you do your data collection. That's how you make your decisions on acting preemptively and doing these preemptive initiatives. You have to have the data. And what happens when you have millions of people using technology much more than they were in the past and technological use going up and up and up exponentially because of the economic situation we're in right now? Well, you have a lot more data to collect. And who benefits from that? Well, none other than the wonderful mega corporations and governments around the world. What do they use that for? Well, of course, for your own good to make sure that society is maintaining order and the economic system does not collapse. Well, uh, yeah, probably not. There's probably other things that they do with that that I've talked about many times and I don't have to go over. I'm sure you can use your imagination or your memory to figure that out. But this is an issue. We see uh, there was a paper from the World Health Organization called, quote, Global Surveillance for Human Infection, and that talks about a lot of these types of things where you need surveillance globally, data collection globally to track people, and you use this to prevent and monitor human infection with a pandemic such as what we're dealing with right now. And I've mentioned China, but you have the US as well. Many other countries are using location data off someone's phone. And what they can do is that if they know who you are, so China, for example, you log in through an app that's mandatory that you download on your phone, right? 
right now, and every Chinese citizen has this on their smartphone, then what happens is that the government knows who you are, they know where you are, they know what you're doing. And so if you test positive for COVID-19, then they can track where you are, make sure that you are quarantined like you're supposed to be, and that you are not breaking the law or breaking regulation in any way. Then they can also track backtrack at least where you had been and who you had come in contact with previously over the past, let's say, 10 days. Let's say that's the incubation period they're working with. And so with that, they can not only use your location data as the quarantined infected citizen, but then they use the location data of everybody else that you had been in contact with or been around to make decisions on who else to put as high risk for a quarantine. And they might go ahead and quarantine these people without them being tested at all. But if they had come into close contact with an infected person in the recent past, then go ahead and quarantine them right away. And to some degree, that does make perfect sense. And so you could say that that's something that's necessary. That's a good thing. But you can also see how that is a nightmare for people that focus on civil liberties and things of this nature. If you go back to Frank Church and his quotes about the government collecting data and information and communication, how they can use that to detect enemies and stop enemies and this kind of thing. But that that is, once you go there, that's a bridge you can't come back from. And that is likely to be used and is definitely able to be used by some sort of dictatorial person, group, government, whatever, to take full control over a society, um, something I have discussed many times in the past. And so with that, we see all of this data being collected. We see people using technology a lot more and generating the data for these corporations and for these governments. I mentioned how these big corporations are gaining more power and political pull. We talk about the shift towards a technocracy with the experts around the world making these decisions based on data and scientific research and the scientific method. And all of it ties in together very well. You even have the uh, minor side note example that's just interesting that drones are being used. That's another technology being used a lot during this coronavirus pandemic, where drones are flying around giving public service announcements and doing crowd control and doing police activities so that the police do not have to come in contact with the individual citizens who are possibly dirty and infectious. And so you see technology being used to handle these things. And that is another rabbit hole that we will not go down with drones and infringing on people's rights and surveillance and all that kind of stuff. But that is something that is being used. So I think that is everything I wanted to cover that definitely goes over the broad scope of these bigger institutions and organizations and how things are shifting and how that relates to a degree to the time period I'm discussing in this season of this parallel with the Reformation time period. And hopefully, after going over all of these things, it will allow you to be able to see that and pull that out from the next few interviews where as you're listening, you can see, hey, that actually is happening. And hey, this is happening in this way. Because as I recorded the next two, and there are only two episodes, or not two episodes, two interviews left, uh, which each consist of multiple episodes, many episodes. So you will have plenty of content to listen to after this before I get into the solo episodes again for season two. But as you get into that, those 
those were recorded before any coronavirus had been detected, anybody knew anything about it. I had pre-recorded the interviews and kind of gotten them all done up front and then spent a lot of time doing all the editing and all this kind of stuff. And that's when the outbreak really hit. And that's when all this information came out and all this stuff started happening. So these interviews took place before that. So keep that in mind. And hopefully you can keep this episode and the past two episodes in mind as you listen to that and start to draw out these parallels yourself. I wanted to highlight them very specifically and call out these different things that are happening now so that that can help you as you are listening to these interviews and listen to the parallels that I'm drawing for the rest of the season. You can see how this really is playing out in many different ways and especially with this current situation, how that is something that is worth highlighting, it's worth paying attention to, it's worth learning from. And so with that, I will wrap up this episode now. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for anybody who has given a rating or a review. I don't think I've received any new ones since the last episode, but there are at least a few out there. And so that is wonderful. That's a lot better than zero. Um, Maybe you could click on the stars and do a review. I had one that I mentioned a long time ago when it came in where someone gave a three-star review because the name Our Foundations led them to believe that I should have been talking about Native Americans. And shame on me. That is just something that I forgot the word they used for it, but that it was inconsistent and it didn't work out and it was disingenuous, I think might have been the word, that I would call my podcast Our Foundations without talking about the Native Americans. And so uh, hopefully you would agree with me and say that what I call my podcast is up to me and what I cover is up to me and that Our Foundations does relate very well with these foundational systems and institutions that I have discussed for the entirety of this podcast. So if you want to do me a favor and help get the rating of the podcast up above and cancel out that uh, three-star review, three stars, not bad. At least they gave me a decent review. That's, That's nice. And they wrote something about it. That's nice as well. So thank you, whoever you are. I highly doubt your list. But that would be wonderful if you were. So if the rest of you want to give a five-star review, hopefully, or four-star, whatever you want to give, then that would be very appreciative and help balance out that uh, one uh, misguided individual who uh, thought my podcast was supposed to be about Native Americans. So moving on. Thank you to my patrons who are still supporting me. Uh, All of them still are. One had to back down a little bit, but still is giving donations financially, which is very helpful for me. I greatly appreciate that. That's how I pay for any research that I do that costs money. That's how I pay for my audiobooks that I have to buy. That's how I paid for my microphone and different things like this that I have had to buy myself. I pay for all that through the Patreon supporters now and my hosting fees. And hopefully one day I'll have my own website that does not have a podbean.com portioned on it. And it is just ourfoundations.com or ourfoundationspodcast.com, whatever it ends up being. But hopefully I can get my own website at some point, but then I have to pay for those hosting fees. So yeah, we'll see. So thank you, though, for those of you that are financially supporting. And just thank you for listening. I hope that this has been interesting. I hope this really brings out current events in your mind, in the mind frame and the perspective that I try to focus on in the podcast of being a little more uh, contrarian in how you view things and skeptical in how you look at things and being able to hopefully see 
that although there are very good and positive aspects to some of these things, there are also very dangerous and very bad aspects to these things as well. And looking at who is acting behind the scenes, what goals and ideologies are being enacted out, uh, look at something like eugenics. And if you have not listened to the eugenics episode, go back and do so. Uh, ideally, the entire corruption and conspiracy series that I did, I think that starts at episode 18 with, I think it's with the ideologies of the elite is the name of the episode, and that talks about different ideologies um, by focusing on different books throughout time. And then uh, I think at the end of that series, maybe I get into eugenics and do an episode on that. All of that is very relevant to the things that are going on now. I know I've mentioned that series many times in the past few episodes because there's a lot of correlation there. So if you have not listened to those, go back and listen to those in season one. That is very crucial information, very relevant, and it gives you a lot of the background information and the mindset to be able to uh, really assess and analyze all of this information and all the things that are happening. So with that, I'm going to wrap up here. Thank you very much again for listening, for supporting, for doing all that you do. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.